Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. It is a rare combination when you find someone that is anointed, brilliantly educated, and willing to serve at a basic level. Today's guest is just one of those. Hello, this is Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm so glad that you've joined me today for this interview. Dr. Evan Horton has been my friend for a couple of decades. I've been so blessed to see how God uses him in such a mighty way. He has an earned doctorate, pastored, and served as a college president in Canada, and then came to take over a situation that needed someone to come and turn it around. Dr. Horton, welcome to The Leader's Notebook. Thank you, Mark. It's a privilege. We're so glad that you're here. And uh, I want to just dive right in. Your, your life story is just absolutely fascinating. One thing is, we have a couple of similarities. We were both raised in extremely conservative Methodist homes. That's right. Yep. I'm born in a Born and raised in a pastor's home, actually, and uh, my wife's father was a Methodist pastor, and both of her grandfathers were, so steeped in a long line of Methodism. And uh, you, as I did, I, I came into the baptism of the Holy Spirit in a, in a dramatic way, you and Deborah both. How did, how did that happen? Well, it, uh, again, you know, God's purposes are intentional, and uh, nothing is uh, out of the um, plan of the Lord in, in your life, and so my father had passed away in January uh, of that year, and I we had just finished building a new facility for uh, the Methodist Church I was pastoring in London, Ontario, Canada, and I was just tired, and I was burnt out. I was dealing with grief issues, loss issues. He, he passed away at 59. He'd been my mentor, and I was invited to a uh, spirit-filled conference in Niagara Falls, New York. And Marilyn Hickey happened to be the speaker, never heard of her, didn't know her. And she gave a call for people to receive the anointing and said, if you're ministering without the anointing, you're going to end up tired, worn out and burnt out. And I thought, that's me. And so we went forward and she laid hands on us and we got hit with the power of God in a dramatic way. You know, that is so similar, exactly what I was experiencing in 1975. I was pastoring a Methodist church, burned out, burned down, struggling <laughs> in every way. And I went to a conference where Ralph Wilkerson was, the late Ralph Wilkerson was speaking. And uh, and it uh, it changed my whole life. And of course, you wind up not pastoring a Methodist church. <laughs> uh, and then you went to take over as the pastor at the Mississauga Gospel Temple, and the growth just was amazing there. Weekly attendance up to 2,000 in six services, four different languages. That must have been quite a ride. It really was. It was, it was an exciting journey. I never, uh, I remember transferring from the Methodist church to the assemblies in Canada and the assistant superintendent asked, did I have any uh, classes on Pentecostal theology? And I said, yeah, why it isn't true. <laughs> and then uh, I got filled with the Holy Spirit and um, was asked to come to this church in Toronto and a uh, suburb of Toronto. And it was just an exciting time. And we it was hard to keep up with everything. It was a, I was only 32 at the time. And 
it just it just grew and God blessed and it was it was powerful. It was just my learning experience of pastoring a Pentecostal church. Again, the corollary between our lives. I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, left the Methodist Church. I was the associate pastor at Mount Perrin and then went to Calvary in Orlando. Uh, and you and I experienced the same thing. This. Uh, on the job training. What does it mean to be a Pentecostal pastor? Well, I don't know. I'm figuring it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, you left the uh, Gospel Tabernacle and became the president at Masters College and Seminary there in Toronto. That must have been a huge decision. It was, and uh, I was serving on the Board of Governors for that school, and uh, we were carving out and crafting a new vision on how to train uh, students who were feeling called to ministry, how to be effective ministers of the gospel in the 21st century. And uh, that's how I met you, Mark. It was, yes. uh, um, I came down to Orlando for the, uh, or to Lakeland for the uh, AABC meetings for Association of Bible Colleges, and you were president of Southeastern, and we developed a friendship there. And you were about five years ahead of me, so I kept asking you for advice, and it helped me a lot. Well, I don't know whether it helped or not, but I always <laughs> felt felt like I needed to commiserate anyway. Yeah, it was great. It was a great time. And, uh, and again, you experienced a wonderful turnaround. Things went well for you in that leadership position. Um, I was, we were both serving as, as presidents, I at Southeastern University and you at Master's College there in Toronto. And uh, it just seemed like everything's cruising along. And then you called me one day and said, hey, I, I, I've been called to take over as the pastor at Brownsville Assembly of God in Pensacola. And I, I'll never forget, I said, oh, Evan, have you considered this carefully? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh... It was quite a transition. I had promised the board of um, the college that I would do five years because I'm really called to be a pastor. And uh, I said, well, I'll help with this new vision for five years, and then I want to go back pastoring. And and um, as, as you said, I received the call from Brownsville, and uh, God's irony again, he takes a Canadian renegade Methodist and plunks him down in the South in a new denomination, a new country, new culture and post-revival church. Um, and, and it was a challenge. It was, it was quite the challenge to take over Brownsville. You know, I see what you've done there and we're going to come to that, but let's talk about that arrival. Um, mm. Let's, let's, I want to really ask you to be real honest with our listeners. We have thousands of people listening. Was there a moment in the early days where you said to yourself, I've, I, this is, I've messed up. Um, I, I questioned and I asked God, are you sure? <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, it was our first Sunday. I'd never come to the revival and, you know, 5 million people came over six years, largest, longest running revival in U S history. And, um, came for that first Sunday just to see for the search committee to see us, for us to see them, see the city, just see if God is in this. And, uh, was scheduled to preach that Sunday morning. And, uh, we did. And uh, we came, and God moved in that service. It was powerful. I uh, came back to the uh, after service in the, a room there in the back of the church, and um, Deborah burst into tears, my wife, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, I didn't want to fall in love this fast. Uh, and we knew that morning we were called wow. uh, to Brownsville. 
And then Sunday night, the chairman of the search committee met me in the lobby of the hotel we were staying at. And he pulled out a beat old briefcase and pulled out the financials and saw the church was uh, $11.5 million in debt. And they had over a half a million dollars in overdue bills. And there was no income to support that kind of debt. And I just thought, oh, my goodness. I know in my heart I'm called, but in my head it says run. <laughs> As you know, when we talked, I was deeply concerned. I had been through exactly that at Calvary Assembly, a $17.4 million debt and mm-hmm. uh, 120 days behind our vendors. I saw that half a million Half a million dollars in in functional debt, that actually is a more threatening reality than the $11.5 million uh, mortgage. Yeah, yeah, it is, because any any of those uh, uh, vendors could file suits and we would be in default and uh, it'd, be, it'd be a rough go. Oh, it's finished at that point. I, I know I had to, I had to go around, uh, Orlando when I went to Calvary, like a, a beggar with my hat in my hand. I had to go to Florida Power and say, if please just don't turn the lights off, we'll, we'll pay you. It's humiliating, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's humbling. <laughs> You've got to go hat in hand and it's, uh, it's pretty tough. And there, I've been here 15 years now and, uh, there's three specific times where I said, I had my Jeremiah's complaint where I said, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. And I just, I didn't see any way we could make it through. I just, I just was done. I was finished. But you have stayed in, you've, you've hung through it all and you've really brought it into financial health and into a new ministerial health, if I can use that word, a new way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. For, for the listeners, we have a lot of young listeners and I know it seems amazing that anybody be listening wouldn't even know about the famous Brownsville revival and John Kilpatrick and Steve Hill and all that. But what were the years of that revival? The dates? So Father's Day, 1995, Steve Hill came as a missionary from South America. And uh, just his, his testimony, and I had him preach before he passed away at the church, one of my first years there. And uh, he told me he had three sermons that he would preach for his mission's funding. And that was it. He, he wasn't a preacher. He was a missionary. And uh, he preached one of his three sermons, and God sovereignly moved in. And revival started, and for the next six years till 2001, as I said, five million people came through the doors from all over the world. It was a news story of the whole world, and it was a huge thing. Mm-hmm. It was. I often teach at the Leadership Institute, the NICL that I teach, that revival is like nuclear power. It can light up a city, but it can also blow up a city. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to look at it, yep. And it really, it really was a phenomenal story and all, but the wreckage at the end of it was, was pretty stunning, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it, was, it, it, it was a tough go. I mean, they, when they finished, um, they believed, and I, it was sincere, and, and John Kilpatrick and I have talked a number of times about the, the sequence of events at the close, and uh, the crowd started to wane, and the money started to wane, and... Uh, it just started to crater at the end. And um, as, as histor- church historians know, any local church that has a long protracted revival don't survive. The revival culture is not a local church culture. You've got 5 million people coming from all over the world, but those people don't, those people don't live in Pensacola. They're not a constituency of a local church. Nope. And when it's over, 
When it's over, they're not coming back. There's nothing that draws them back to that. So in steps a Canadian ex-Methodist, former seminary president, Dr. Evan Horton, and you had to basically shift the whole direction of that organization, something that had been going east. You have to turn it west. That must have been hugely intimidating. It, it was, but, but here's, what, here's what was, the, I think, the saving factor and redeeming factor for me is I went back and researched the beginning of the church. Mm. And uh, it was a, a church plant from the east side, First Assembly in, in Pensacola, to the west side. And uh, we, there were 17 charter members met on a street corner where the church is today and had a prayer meeting, and they had a vision for a full gospel message and church on the west side of Pensacola in Brownsville community. And one of those charter members is still alive. He's 105, turned 105 two weeks ago. Wow. And I've, I've heard his story three or four times. And, and the DNA of that church is a full gospel assemblies, Pentecostal church preaching the gospel in Brownsville. I believe, Mark, that if you fan the flame of the DNA of a church, it will come back. And that's what I determined to do. That's what I hung on to. You found that spark somehow. I like your phrase, the DNA was still there. And uh, you fanned the flame and you shifted from a worldwide high profile, you know, story to a forgotten neighborhood. And Brownsville was at that time, at least a pretty blue collar or even lower blue collar neighborhood. Brownsville is the poorest, most impoverished community in the panhandle of Florida, from Mobile, Alabama to Tallahassee. Uh, any negative statistic, Brownsville community is number one with crime, violence, drug abuse, prostitution, domestic violence, single parent home, poverty, uh, foster child, and juvenile delinquency. It's number one. And the amount of resources from the county and the city to get poured into Brownsville is very disproportionate per capita to any other community in this region. So it's, it's, it's very impoverished. And the phrase I use is the revival touched the world, but it didn't touch that community. So I, I just, uh, it's just such an astonishing story, uh, Evan, uh, that you come in following this, this um, highly publicized worldwide thing and you turn the, congregation such as it was this remnant back to their roots and back to the community and you say we've got to minister in this community where it is that's this is nothing like anything you've ever done before it's not like mississauga it's not like a, a, a it, it's nothing you've ever done before I, it's an astonishing transition for you personally it seems to me it, it, really, it really was. Of all the assignments the Lord's given me, this has been the most challenging, that's for sure, and the biggest one, the most daunting. And uh, I just, I scratch my head every time going, wow, this is, in 44 years of ministry, this has been the, the most difficult. And now you're into your second decade there, and uh, God has used you in a mighty way, and, and really the transition to a, a ministry that reaches to the poor, uh, it's been phenomenal. Tell us something about uh, the Hope Center, which is really one of the major uh, outreaches of, um, of Brownsville Assembly now. Yeah, and, and just a couple more principles how we did the shift or why we did the shift. Good. Um, I, we did the, I did the demographics of the community. 
contextual analysis of, you know, what does the community look like? And then I did a demographic study of the congregation of what does the church look like? And they were opposites. Mm. It was a white middle-class congregation in an African-American predominantly poor, impoverished community. And it was a drive-in church. And when I went door-to-door my first year and knocked on every door of Brownsville, all I heard was, are you the pastor of that big, rich, white church? And, and there's no Brownsville Pastors Association. So I started it. I was the only white guy. And, and I thought, this is in Canada. Uh, Canada is very multicultural and very inter, you know, interracial, interblended, and uh, tolerant of each race and country and nationality. But they say the only place uh, segregation is still alive and well is in the church. You have black churches and white churches. And this was a white church in a black community. And I just knew it wouldn't survive. The other phrase that I came up with and that really held in my spirit was the spirit that services of revival have ceased, but the spirit of revival is still in that house. And I believe what that community needed is what was happening in that sanctuary, not just for revival services, but was still there. So we began reaching the community. We would every three or four months have a uh, what we called Mission Brownsville, and we would have haircuts and groceries and uh, services and agencies come. And uh, it just started to grow. We served hot lunches, uh, hot meals, gave it away, gave away clothes, did all kinds of things. Then we started doing it every Saturday. And uh, then we got contacted by other agencies and it started to grow. The um, Monday of uh, the last Monday of March, I believe it was when President Trump gave his order of no groups greater than 10 and the pandemic was coming and everybody was shutting down in 2020. I thought, that's it. Who am I going to lay off? How are we going to survive? We can't hand out food. It's high risk. It's too much contact with the public. And I was ready to shut it down. And I really believe I heard the Lord say, you can't. The part-time minimum wage jobs is the number one employer for Brownsville. Those jobs are going to go away and people are going to be more hungry and hurting than ever. And so we've kept it going and we actually hired an increased staff Mm. and it exploded. In 2020, we distributed 2 million pounds of relief goods. It just went crazy. I mean, and and we became known in the neighborhood and the community and the profile. It just, we, we got certified as a USDA agency in 48 hours. So we got all the food for free. We never paid anything for anything coming in. And we just started ramp three times a week. We gave out groceries and food and lineups would start at three, four in the morning for our food distribution at eight, just so people could get food. Wow. I want to ask you about something you said a minute ago. You just said it in passing, but I made a note of it here on my desk. Um, You said you knocked on every door in Brownsville. That. You know, that is such an kind of old-timey approach to church growth. Everybody wants all this fancy stuff. It's That's really something. You just went and knocked on doors in in that impoverished community and said, hey, I'm the pastor from Brownsville. Yep. And there's 1,100 homes. I've done it three times in the last 15 years. And and I remember when I was doing my doctorate at United Seminary, Leonard Sweet was the president and... uh, um, Howard Snyder was our mentor who was there at the Asbury Revival where I got my MDiv and they talked about studying your context and they said do subjective and objective data and uh, the objective of course is the census and um, CRA development plans and studies and so you look at all the numbers 
But then also there's nothing that can replace the subject of data where you go and talk to the high school principal, talk to uh, the, the deputy, the sheriff's deputies, talk to the bank manager, um, go door to door and you will get a feeling, a sense of what the community's like. And that's why I did it. I wanted to know what my Jerusalem was. I had to know what was going on in that community. Evan, I got to tell you, I think that it would be uh, you'd be hard pressed to find a pastor in any community in America that has knocked on eleven hundred individual doors <laughs> in three times in the entire time they pastor. I, I, of everything you told me, I think that's actually the most striking. That's in a, that's that is really something. Now, now, what is what does Sunday morning look like now at Brownsville? Tell me when if I was preaching on that platform, which, by the way, I think you owe me an invitation. I do want to say that. <laughs> I do. I do. I really have to have you come because you would you would you would challenge us because I love your your speaking and uh, you'd be blessed. First time Marilyn Hickey came and spoke and I've had her probably six, seven times since I've been here. Uh, she always says I walk away with more than what I gave because mm. that spirit of revival is in the house. And it's, it's incredible. I, I walk in there middle of the morning, late at night, lights are on. I'm going to go turn them off. And his presence is there. Nobody's there, but he's still there because what he touches is eternal. And, uh, uh, you come now and you, and you preach to Brownsville, you'd find 35% non-Caucasian. Uh, you'd find homeless. Uh, you'd find, uh, domestic violence survivors going through our recovery group. Uh, you'd find widows who've lost their spouses to COVID. Um, it's, it's, uh, a, a powerful time to just see that multi-complexion and children's ministry is, uh, 50-50, non-Caucasian, uh, youth ministry now 50-50. And it's reflecting the region, not just Brownsville, but the region as to people driving in from all over still coming. We'll have people visiting from all over the United States, some from overseas, because they want to be at Brownsville and just get a sense of what happened there. But then we have people from the community that aren't dressed nice, smell a little rough. And every Sunday after service, we feed a hot lunch, give them a box of groceries, open our clothes closet, and everything's free. Wow. That's an incredible story. What what a transition. I'm just trying to get my mind around. So here's a church that reaches the world with a a spiritual message, a, a revival message. I'm not denigrating that, mm-hmm. but it bypasses the community in which it lives. Now it is a church in the same community that's reaching that community and beyond it with a message of hope and, and the presence of God at the practical level of your life. What, what a transition. Well, and, and the, the congregation is a serving congregation. Uh, they step up and serve all the time. And, and you ask for volunteers, you'll have 80 to 100 show up and volunteer for an event. And uh, they just serve. I think it wasn't just the, the dynamics of John Kilpatrick and Steve Hill and Lyndall Cooley, which was a huge part of it. But I also believe God chose Brownsville Assembly because that congregation would serve night after night after night for revival. And now they're serving a community and neighborhood. And that spirit of service and commitment uh, to the Lord and to the kingdom is huge. Evan, how, how could people, suppose somebody wanted to, you know, make an investment there in the Brownsville community and in what you're doing, how, how can they do that? How can they get online and find you and, and make, a, make a commitment that might, that might really help some people in, the, in that community? Well, that's, I appreciate that. It's very simple. Our, our uh, 
website is brownsville.church. And uh, there's a donate button there on the homepage. And uh, you can give, you can designate where you want it to go. Uh, the Hope Center link is there as well, uh, which is the community outreach, which is a non-religious, non-profit 501c3. And uh, that's becoming more and more our arm of uh, ministry into the community where we're moving these programs and our vision for that whole uh, neighborhood. It's uh, We've got lots of projects on the go and we need all the help we can get. Those of you that are listening, I, I can't think of a better place uh, that for you to make an investment in a, in a church that has turned the corner, making a huge impact in the community and in a community of great need. You can find that website again is brownsville.church. You'll find a tab where you can make a contribution. You can designate for the Hope Center or just make a contribution to brownsville.church, a church that is reaching its community. Evan, it's a huge transition, what you've done, a cultural shift. This is this is beyond simply church growth. You led a cultural, a, a whole paradigm shift. It's a remarkable story. I always ask near the end of an interview, a podcast like this, and we're coming right to the end of it, there's a question I always ask, and I don't mean to spring it on you, but here it is. If you could speak to every leader in the world, political, religious, educational, business leaders, and you could speak to all of them at the same time, but you could only say one thing, what, what is Evan Horton's message of leadership to the leaders of the world? This is the first thing that came to mind, Mark. Let God surprise you. Mm. And uh, there is no way this would happen without... God surprising me. And, and he has come through when I was at the end of my rope, ready to pack it in before I was spirit filled. Since I've been at Brownsville, God has surprised me. And just be open for those phenomenal surprises that God has for you. What a wonderful word. Let God surprise you. I love it. Dr. Horton, thank you so much for joining us today on the Leader's Notebook. It, it's been a, a tremendous inspiration to me and I know to all our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Dr. Evan Horton. And thank you for joining us on The Leader's Notebook. Until we meet again, I'm Mark Rutland. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.